Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> oh, sorry. That was not a good start. Almost lose my voice here in the first sentence. <clears throat> anyway, this is session number 146, and we are back in the Council of Elrond still uh, looking. That's gonna, still going to be true for quite some time. Uh, as we are... Uh, preparing to look at Gandalf's research methods here today, uh, so that's going to be uh, uh, th that's going to be fun. Looking forward to um, Gandalf's story of his research trip to Minas Tirith. Um, just a couple things I wanted to talk about before we begin our official discussion. First, um, oh, so for uh, how many weeks have we uh, been going? This is uh, session number one hundred and forty-six is uh, this one, so... And it was, as I remember, it was Tolkien's birthday in 2017 that we began, right? So we're almost two, three and a half years now in. Uh, no, wait. No, yes. Three and a half years in. I thought maybe two and a half, but no. No, it's fully three and a half years in. Um, that's, um... Yep, that is, in fact, the situation. Uh, so anyway, uh... I, Anyway, as I said, before I start, two things I wanted to talk about. First, I just wanted to remind you, uh, don't forget, uh, it's uh, time to register for July uh, Path Classes for our new Signum Path program. Uh, we, are, we have, uh, we're doing, again, uh, one, of, one of our classes for each one of our new uh, Path badges. We're doing a class on, pow on uh, powerful presentations, one on conflict resolution, one on time management, and one on writing as process, to be thinking more about, about writing and expository writing. Um, uh, really, really fun and useful classes that are going to be held this coming July, so next month. Uh, still plenty of time to uh, sign up for those, so I wanted to recommend that to you. Uh, you can go to uh, path.signumuniversity.org uh, and click the register button uh, is the quickest way uh, to get there to the registration page for that. So hoping that uh, I know some of you had been talking about joining us for path classes and I hope you'll be able to uh, here in July. The second thing that uh, I wanted to talk about, and I see you guys already were discussing it here before I started, uh, was thinking about what to do uh you know <clears throat> we've had talks at several points in the past about some kind of proceeds uh this discussion of the lord of the rings that we're doing seems like uh, uh something too good just to let go right we don't uh there's uh, a lot of ground that we have covered and many things that we have discovered uh and i would love to um to produce something but I don't know exactly what or exactly how uh, to produce those things. So uh, Tony Mead has been doing wonderful work uh, and providing resources which will be just absolutely uh, priceless for beginning whatever form uh, we end up, whatever thing we end up doing here. Um, and he has done written summaries and outlines of all of our discussions, and he's now completed all of book one. And we had talked about a while back that book one would be, you know, you know, what each book would be sort of a sensible kind of unit to be considering if we were thinking of something like, um, uh, something like publication, right? Um, I saw somebody, I think Flamifer, maybe it was you, uh, just a little back, yeah, asking, uh, you'd be interested to know what ideas I have about how to use the material. And, uh, 
I um, so I don't know. I, I really don't. Because here's the thing. So like, in a different world, right? I know that at least one thing I would want to do um, would be to to write another book. Um, I would like to write another book, and I would like to write one book on each one of the books, right? So I wouldn't just write Exploring the Lord of the Rings. I don't even think I would write Exploring the Fellowship of the Ring. I would, I would, uh, I would write, you know, uh, Exploring Book One, <laughs> basically, is what I would want to do. I would want to have a six-part series on Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> exploring the Council of Elrond, says JJ. Yeah, something like that. Um, anyway, yeah, so I, I definitely would love to do that, in theory. But eh, that's the problem, um, is that it, I can't. I mean, um, the world in which we actually live... Uh, is one in which I don't have time to write those books, at least not right now. Maybe someday, you know, in my retirement, uh, if I ever retire, uh, which is not an idea I'm particularly attracted to, by the way. Uh, it sounds awful boring. Um, but of course, part of that is just uh, me being spoiled because uh, I love what I do so much. It's like retirement sounds like giving up your hobby, you know, uh, which sounds bad. But anyway, so yeah, I, I, as I say, I, I, I know that I, I can't, if I were to deceive myself uh, and think that I'm going to produce a book, it would be mere self-deception at this point. Um, uh, so yeah, I really don't think that that's something that's exceptionally viable right now. Um, but so I am very open to sort of community discussions. And here's the other thing. The other thing is that um, I am not convinced that even if I did a book kind of like my Exploring the Hobbit book, you know, if I did six of those on The Lord of the Rings, that would be really fun. And I would really enjoy that. And I've certainly gained enormous quantities of material for such books uh, in our discussion so far. But I also can't help but feel that that wouldn't really do the trick in a sense. Uh, what I mean is that that wouldn't, wouldn't do it all. It wouldn't, I'm, I'm not quite sure if not wouldn't do enough is quite exactly right, but, um, it would, um, there's a lot that would not be captured, right? I could talk through a bunch of different themes and stuff, but um, there's a lot of the give and take, and not to mention the fact that, of course, so many of the things that I've learned uh, along the way, I mean, I've had a, a, a bunch of sort of ideas and insights and realizations of my own as we've been going through, but there are also so many things that I have learned uh, from you guys as we've gone through. And so just a, you know, me writing a book seems like a thing that could come out of it in theory. Um, but even that wouldn't, I think, be fully sufficient to really capture it exactly. De La Mancha it doesn't really capture the community aspect. Uh, Angrist suggests one mechanism uh, that I could consider would be very long podcast streams, um, which is a thought. <laughs> that is a thought. Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah, it's... Uh, it's, it's um, yeah, I'm not sure that a book is the best route, um, a, like a regular book, like a normal book. Um, I'm not sure what would be the best, really. And yeah, Arden Cranor is sort of joking about the podcast thing. Um, uh, because, okay, 
So I'm one of the goals. So you might ask, like, why, like, what is exactly the interest? What would be the point in doing this? One point would be to sort of... One way to think about it would be something like a, like a highlights reel, essentially, right? Like to take, to draw out, because look, I, you know, my discussions of the text might be lots of things, but like, you know, pithy and efficient, they are not, right? Uh, and I know for a fact that there are a lot of times when we kind of, you know, wrestle with a passage and kind of chew on it for a long time. And if I were to explain it in a book, I could probably draw from almost an hour of discussion, you know, maybe like a page or two, you know, a few paragraphs uh, that really kind of come to the central point uh, that I finally, you know, got around to seeing after thinking it through with you guys for a while. Um, so, you know, definitely to sort of be extracting uh, from these. I mean, you know, I don't in any way grudge the experience of doing this together. And this for me, this couldn't happen in any other way. Um, but again, but I think there would be much to be gained uh, for us and for others in bringing together some of the thoughts that we've had. Um, something like a collection of essays, Fourth Dauntless, I think would be interesting. My biggest concern about a collection of essays is that it would be necessarily very selective, right? I would love to do something a little more thorough. Um, but Fourth Dauntless, I also think that there might be some good essays to be written as well. I wouldn't want to uh, exclude that possibility. Um, the idea of a wiki is an interesting one. Um, uh the idea of a wiki, it, so if, if we were to create a wiki, then that would, um, it would enable it to be more, uh, as the Dorward says there, more exhaustive and complete. Uh, it, it would require less editing in some, well, more in some ways, less in others. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I think, um, um. Uh, <laughs> we need a series of video reenactments of all the important scenes in the book. Yeah, see, that could that could that could happen. Um, anyway, yeah. So I, there's no one of the. So there are a couple things that I think are pretty important from a uh, a basic standpoint. I would want it to be something that was accessible, right? I would want it to be something that's online, uh, and you know, so something that that would be easy for folks to access. Um, I would want, uh, and, but it could be, um, it could be some, something like a wiki, uh, something like, um, uh, but it could also include uh, like fuller essays and discussions. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think, um, uh, Yeah. Mad Violinist, I agree. Mad Violinist is saying that uh, it would change the nature of the material from an exploration to a subject-based compendium. That might be desirable. That might be desirable, but we'd want to think through the nature of that change. Yeah, yeah. There are definitely, there are some downsides to a wiki. I don't think that's a, that's a, I don't think that's a no-brainer. Um, because it's true, Mad Violinist, if we have uh, the, um, think about uh one of the things I've been discussing, and I'm sorry, I keep making all these references to my Wednesday night discussions of Morgoth's Ring because it's been like 
a huge experience for me. I've been just loving uh, our discussions of Morgoth's Ring, uh, and I've learned so much, so I keep coming back to it, and I, I, I hope it doesn't sound like shameless self-promotion. I just wanted to share things that I learned there. Um, but one of the things that we've been talking about a lot is the choice that Christopher Tolkien made in publishing the Silmarillion to remove the frame. There was a frame, originally. Um, Alfwina's frame, and Pengalot of Gondolin. And... Um, Anyway, uh, one of the things that I've often said is that when, you rem- when, when he removes the frame, so especially from things like the Aino Lindale, there are passages in the Aino Lindale, in the published Aino Lindale, um, which uh, were originally attributed, like they were not statements of fact by a narrator, they were explicitly statements of opinion that were being credited to a particular person or spoken from a particular point of view. And when the frame is removed, they sound like the word of God, right? Uh, And which is at times off-putting in the Aino Indole. Anyway, so uh, the... um, So... Mad Violinist, that's one of the things that I think about in trying to convert it to a wiki, right? Uh, by having, uh, by organizing the thing as a wiki, like a series of subject headings, right, with things on each subject, it begins to have that sense of, like, here's, like, the definitive word on this, like, piece of material or something, and it does really lose the sense of, uh, you know, sort of speculation and, and everything. I don't know. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, Turambar, I agree. We, we we could well decide to have more than one uh, uh, product. Um, yeah. I mean, goodness, I remember how hard... I had a really difficult time, probably the hardest part of writing my Hobbit book, which was in many ways fairly easy to write, that it was relatively quick to write. Um but the hardest thing about it was deciding how to approach it, like deciding the structure of it, deciding on the themes I was going to do and how, because I wanted to do a chapter by chapter discussion, but I wanted to make sure to track themes. And so trying to figure out how to balance that uh, was really hard. And this is even harder uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, anyway, so I, I, I bring this up not because I want to take our whole time tonight discussing this, uh, uh, you know, or on any anticipation that we're going to solve this question, uh, you know, here tonight. But I just wanted to raise it so that people can be thinking about it um, and can be sort of participating in a discussion. Tony, is there a spot? I know. So on the discussion boards, on our Mythgard discussion boards, where the near the place where the uh, the questions that people post are posted, right, um, is the place where Tony has put the the outlines, right, the summaries, uh, the episode summaries. Um, is there a place there for um, people to kind of discuss this uh, and everything? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I, it's, I, I think there's, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good, right, yeah, so there's the link to the episode summaries, and maybe there's, we can do a thread there to kind of discuss ideas about what to do and who wants to be involved, because again, the one constant of which I am certain is that I know that I am not going to have much time 
to dedicate to this project. I wish that I could. I would love to do this, but I know that I can't. Like, I just, I need to be really clear at the outset that I know that I'm not going to be able to have time to do that. Um, so, but I want to encourage it to happen. I would love to see folks who would like to think about this more and to, to sort of pursue these things more. People who, I know that there are, um, you know, a lot of people who are interested in this in a lot of different ways and who have a lot of different skills and enjoy doing things in a lot of different ways. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Cook of Wood and Miner, exactly. It's, it's, I do have a lot of other things <laughs> that I'm doing. Uh, and it is true that, um, it's I although I could wish in some ways it weren't the case. It, it is true that the hours I give every Tuesday night are kind of um, the most that I can spare uh, for this project, unfortunately. Um, but um, anyway, uh, <laughs> JJ says, oh, so we don't get to make all the decisions and then expect you to do all the work. What kind of parent are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got enough of that kind of thing to deal with in uh, the rest of my life there. Um, yeah. So um, anyway, I just wanted to make sure. To, I mean, I what well, I was going to say to raise it uh, for discussion, but you guys were already discussing it when I came in. So just to kind of acknowledge that discussion and to encourage people to be thinking and brainstorming and making some suggestions about that. One thing that I would say, I don't think that we need to have like one definitive answer. Right. Um, that is, if, if there are people who are really wanting to write uh, essays towards a collection of essays, let's do that. Why shouldn't we do that? Um, if there are people who would like to work on a single collection, a single book like collection, uh, something like uh, uh, something like, you know, uh, tracing themes, uh, major themes like my Hobbit book did. Let's do that. Right. Absolutely. I think that could be, you know, maybe some kind of like team editorial thing, uh, bringing together the, the, the thoughts and suggestions and stuff from the book. That would be really cool. Um, what I would really kind of like to do is to do something that is outside the boundaries. Uh, and this, of course, this is kind of a me suggestion, but something that's outside of the traditional conventional publication boundaries. Right. So like all of the above, something which uh, uh, has uh, like a book which also has, um, uh, I could imagine, for instance, a uh, basically like a, a web page which has the text chapter by chapter of a book which traces major themes that we've discussed along the way, um, chapter by chapter. Uh, but then, but also has essays by people from the class. You know, those of you who want to contribute essays uh, and. Um, uh, and you know which can, which can then be referenced and alluded to within the discussion of the book itself, and then something like an appendix slash index, which would be like a wiki, right? Where we could we could be uh, collect, you know, which of course could then be referenced through the text and stuff. I mean, I don't see any reason why we couldn't have elements of a bunch of these different ideas together, um, uh, and. Because, again, with it being a completely digital thing, there's no reason that we have to conform to the the kind of publication presuppositions that are, you know, based on the print world. Because we're not this I do not think is going to be a print world kind of document, whatever it is. Um, but. Um, yeah, um, 
And it is true, Arden Crayon, we can design merch around our in-jokes without fear of talking copyright problems. And yes, I do think that is something that... Um, uh, Signum is planning to actually open a merch shop sometime, and um, I myself would not object to a Bob is a Hobbit t-shirt, which is a suggestion I saw earlier on. Uh, you know, yes, that kind of thing. Spiritual boulders, yes, exactly. Um, uh, I, you know, absolutely, absolutely, we could do that kind of thing. So that, that certainly, I think, is something. And yes, there, there are definitely some of those... Uh, Many of our inside jokes, which we could merchandise without fear of copyright uh, or trademark violations. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. A- anyway, lots of I'm, and, and again, also open to suggestions there. If you guys want to do another discussion thread um, to suggest uh, like T-shirt ideas uh, for, for, from the class, that would be really that would be really cool. Um, but, um, yeah. Okay, cool. So, like I said, I'm very open to suggestions and I would be excited to see people really, you know, uh, uh, jump in and and see where we could take this. I think that, 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 uh, what we are doing together, you know, here, there's definitely stuff that we have to offer to the rest of the Tolkien, the future of the Tolkien reading world. Um, uh, so I think that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of possibilities there. Okay, cool. Um, let's, uh, yeah, great. You know, um, that's really interesting. Ambrosia says, what about some kind of integration with an ebook, uh, like riff tracks for ebooks where we have our own program or something that can slot in notes and links to articles in the text? You know, that actually, I have had several conversations about that. Um, a like because I would love that I would abs- actually that I had that idea several years back. Um, in fact, I was toying with something like that back in 2012 with my Hobbit book. Like it's what I would have wanted, right? I mean, ideally, I didn't want to write a standalone book. I wanted to write an apparatus to the Hobbit. And of course, Anderson had already done the annotated Hobbit, and I wasn't wanting to do anything like the annotations that he was doing. Anyways, it wasn't like I was doing the same thing that he was, but I knew I wouldn't be able to republish the text, right? But yes, I absolutely would have loved uh, to have some kind of mechanism by which everything that I had to say would just like float next to the text, be in the margin of the text so that people could read, you know, like facing page, you know, like uh, the text in my commentary, something like that. Um, That is... um, that is what I would really, really love, would have loved to do originally. Um, it's something I've even been toying with to think about, like, is there a mechanism for that? You know, I know that we can't reproduce the text, obviously, uh, but is there a way that we could somehow, like, yeah, I, something like I, like Rift Tracks is exactly the kind of model that I was thinking of. I would, um, I would love that. But anyway, yeah, I don't... Um, I don't know if that's possible or exactly how it would be possible. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I certainly agree, Cecilia, when we're thinking about uh, electronic publishing and, uh, you know, 
different interactive e-texts and stuff, uh, we will certainly be wanting to think about um, accessibility uh, for the blind. No question. That will certainly be something we'll be thinking about when we do this. Um, anyway, so uh, we'll see. Oh, so uh, Bricktails asks, how did the annotated Hobbit get the rights to do that? Oh, well, he worked with, he worked with Christopher Tolkien on that. Um, so Anderson, D- Doug Anderson, who did the annotated Hobbit, um, is not only a Tolkien scholar, but he's a textual editor. Um, in the te- this is something a lot of people don't realize it. Right? A lot of people take for granted that the fact that the text of the Hobbit that is in the annotated Hobbit is just like, let's like just load up the text of the Hobbit in there and then we'll put the stuff around. No way. Like Doug Anderson, act, the, like the, the text, the text of the Hobbit that's in the annotated Hobbit is an improved text of the Hobbit. Like he corrected a bunch of textual irregularities that previous editions hadn't caught. That's the kind, that's the way Doug Anderson rolls. Like he does. So he, this was a full like updated edition of the Hobbit with the apparatus around outside. So, I mean, that was uh, something that he was doing with full uh, uh, permission of the estate and collaboration with Christopher Tolkien. So that, that, that's a totally different, that, 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 the, the original annotated Hobbit project by Doug Anderson was a, a completely um, different level of project than the kind of thing that I was doing. So, anyway. Yeah. Um, so, we'll see. But, Tony, I do agree. Organizing our discussion, however we, organizing, we organize it, but or, however we present it, organizing it chapter by chapter does make it easier to align with the text without rereading it. And that's exactly why... Um, I ended up doing my Hobbit book chapter by chapter is like the next best thing that I could do. Um, but um, yeah, Arden Cran says, when do the Lord of the Rings uh, rights expire anyway? Um, <laughs> when Mickey Mouse goes into the public domain, uh, come back and we'll talk about that. Let me just answer the question that way. Um, yeah. Yeah, the tenth of never when the lawyers go away, says Aldasi. Yeah, exactly right. I would not expect uh, to see the Lord of the Rings hit the public domain. Um, it's um, yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, I'm not saying about. I'm not suggesting about the Tolkien State being bought out by Disney. What I'm saying is the copyright laws. Uh, are the, the the Disney Corporation is going to keep making sure that the copyright laws are extended to prevent Mickey Mouse from entering the public domain. And so, therefore, uh, Mickey Mouse is like at the bow wave of the infinite extension of the copyright laws. And so everything following it, I don't expect to hit uh, uh, to hit the the public domain pretty much ever. Um, but anyway, um uh, exactly. A- anything after Mickey Mouse is pretty much private indefinitely. That's that is honestly the assumption that I'm going under right now. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, okay. Um, <laughs> we should be close to wrapping up the field of Cormallon by the by by. It's uh, 2048 is technically the earliest that it could possibly come out of copyright. But again, um, I will be. Very surprised should that in fact come about. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let us uh, move on. 
<laughs> go back to our text here. Or we're not even get through one slide tonight. Okay. Um, uh, so, yeah. Because before we go back to the text, um, I wanted to uh, just uh, one uh, comment uh, from the discussion board, which I wanted to discuss uh, this from Corey Schwab, which was uh, which was really great. Uh, she says, I enjoyed last week's discussion of Gandalf's treason comments. What do you think of this extended analogy to help clarify Gandalf's attitude towards Saruman? A veteran scholar comes across a troubling bit of data. The more the scholar follows the evidence, the more difficult it becomes to reconcile with the views of the world's foremost expert on the subject, which have long been the, been the consensus in the field. Our scholar has a reputation for straight talk, and he has a sadly strained relationship with this expert, who tends towards egotism and also happens to be most uncannily persuasive. Still, the scholar has great respect for the expert and trusts the expert to ultimately follow where the evidence leads. So what does our scholar do with his hunch? An overconfident amateur might confront the expert immediately, or try to win over other scholars to this new hypothesis behind the expert's back. An underconfident amateur might second-guess his hunch, lay everything before the expert, and take his word as law. But our scholar is a veteran, so he keeps mum, gathers his evidence until he is fully convinced, and then takes his watertight case to the expert privately. In Tolkien's day-to-day -day world, maybe Gandalf would have been aiming for a co-authorship. I think that this is uh, um, a really great analogy, uh, Corey. I love this. Um, that seems to me a really, really sound way to think about this, um, especially since... And what I like most about this is that it really helps to contextualize, like, try to, to help us resist projecting backwards Gandalf's total distrust of Saruman too far, right? The story doesn't exactly work. Uh, I mean, the story that he is telling right here in the Fellowship of the Ring does not really work if Gandalf already believes Saruman to be a tre a, tre a, 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 tre a treacher, a traitor, or or even suspects that he's a traitor, right? Um, and this seems to me exactly the the. Uh, the version that she gives there at the end sounds exactly like what Gandalf does, right? Um, he is going to keep mum and gather his evidence. Um, Arden Crayon, exactly. Uh, Saruman fudged the data. He did, right? He did fudge the data, but nobody else can prove it, right? And nobody else even suspected it, as would happen, right? I mean, if the leading expert foremost person in the field, uh, whom everybody trusts and who's... who's uh, you know, whose word has been, you know, whose conclusions have been the consensus in the field for a long time, right? If there were one, if there were something in that, in that evidence that they were fudging, it would take a lot of evidence for that before anybody would really entertain that idea, right? Um, uh, <laughs> Arn Grant says, plus he's got tenure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, so I, I I think that this is a, that that this strikes me as a really really profitable way uh, to think about this whole um, this whole thing because JJ you're absolutely right even once he becomes convinced even once Gandalf becomes sure that Saruman is wrong right once he is totally convinced that the Ring of Power is not there and so therefore what Saruman has been saying to the White Council is 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 inaccurate. Right. That does even that doesn't mean that he's going to believe that it was fraud 
on purpose, right? He could absolutely just think, J.J., as you suggest, that Saruman was just stubbornly wrong. Um, you know, that he was fooling himself. He was, he characterizes himself as being lulled by the words of Saruman. And it, so therefore it makes perfect sense that Saruman has essentially lulled himself. That if Saruman has been in error, his error has been one of self-delusion, right? Of, of, of hoping for the best, that his, his own hopes and beliefs have cheated him, right? Um, Possibly of pride, certainly um, Gandalf's waxed eyebrows. Uh, Saruman would be, in Gandalf's mind, a victim of pride, right? The, cert- the certitude which with which he has been affirming that, you know, trust me, the Ring of Power is definitely not in play anymore, um, would, would certainly be evidence of pride. But, uh, you know, that isn't itself necessarily uh, kind of... Um, isn't 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 fatal, right? Um, uh, it's true of a lot of scholars. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Marielle says, "I know a couple of academics who can't consider new interpretations or approaches to the field they've devoted their lives to." Oh, absolutely, that is not at all uncommon, right? And get or Saruman has, in a measure, staked his reputation on his words about, not only about his words about the, the One Ring, but on his lore of the Rings of Power generally, right? So, so yeah. And again, but, but the point that I would make with that is not that this suggests something particularly bad about Saruman, but I would think that in Gandalf's mind, that would be something of a mitigating factor, a reason he wouldn't suspect treason, right? Like, well, of course, like, you know, so Saruman was wrong, um... So, Marielle, it would be evidence, or, or like one could easily say, if you were positively disposed. So, Marielle, imagining one of those academics who just can't consider new interpretations or approaches as you were describing, that's a limitation, right? But it's it's kind of an understandable one, and for another scholar, it's like if you have two choices, right? Either this person was wrong, but he just wouldn't see it, couldn't see it, blinded himself because he, you know, has really kind of put the put the 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 blinkers on when it comes to his uh, to his field. Right. So either he's he's blinded himself by his own limitations and or he's deliberately through malfeasance, you know, uh, fudging the data and trying to deceive everybody. Right. That is the shocking, appalling conclusion to come to. Um, It's merely venial to be closed-minded, right? It's even understandable. It's even something that, you know, it's like another scholar might say, that could have happened to any of us, right? I also might be hidebound about some things that I don't even realize I'm hidebound about, right? Um, So in some ways, I think that 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 sort of version of Saruman, um, or perhaps to say that version of the interpretation of Saruman, right, would seem very congenial, especially in contrast to the one that says he's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. Um, Tony says, are we saying that maybe Tolkien is infusing a little of his own experience in academia? You know, I don't know. Um, 
I don't know if um, I don't know how like deliberate he is in building these parallels. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know that I would go as far as to say that these kind of academic parallels that we're constructing were things that were actively in Tolkien's mind. Um, but I, I just think that they are like a, a you know Corey's suggestion here on this uh, uh, you know in this in this post uh, uh, that I that I read is a really good analogy that works really well for me and really helps uh, uh, I think to illuminate uh, how what what Gandalf's whole attitude to this situation is again it's so easy knowing what's going to happen right knowing where things are going to be thinking like from the beginning like was we never know Saruman right T- Tolkien doesn't give us the experience of first trusting Saruman and then um, being betrayed right discovering that he's a traitor we don't even ever really hear of I mean I know Saruman is alluded to in chapter two but um, we don't really know anything about Saruman until we learn that he's a traitor right and so it's really easy for us to kind of project that back um, and uh, uh, make I think some fairly rash conclusions uh, about Saruman and that I think leads a lot of people uh, to misread Essentially, these these passages that we've been looking at over the last few weeks, um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Yes, now you are right, Mad Violinist. That um, while Gandalf wouldn't have suspected Saruman during the time of the events he's narrating, the narration itself takes place in a world where he knows Saruman is a traitor. So yes, as he's telling this story, he knows now that Saruman is a traitor. And so um, we do have to keep in mind when he refers to treachery that treachery is on his mind. Absolutely. Uh, and so, Mad Violinist, I would say his use of the word lulled, right, is that has a lot of the air of retrospect around it, right? Now, in retrospect, he looks back at it and says, I was lulled, right? Um, He didn't think about it as being lulled at the time, right? He didn't realize he was being lulled. Um, But uh, so I agree. There are definitely moments in this narrative where we can see Gandalf's current awareness of Saruman's treachery, which has, of course, not yet been broken to the entire room, though it's been hinted at. Um, we can see that coming in and uh, um, and entering in to some extent. But yes, Angrist, exactly that's the problem. From our readerly perspective, Saruman was always a traitor. That's like the whole nature of his character. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, cool. Cool. Yes, and it, and and Tony, you're right. It is a very bitter retrospect. He is uh, um, clearly, uh, you know, very uh, upset at himself, right? For uh, uh, for in retrospect, being obtuse. Um, okay, um, great. So let's see. Oh yeah, the text. That's what I was going to talk about. Woohoo! This is the text that we did last time. Um, but I wanted to leave this up as a transition because there's the one phrase I wanted to touch on here uh, before we move on to the next passage. Um, and because it, 
that was another thing that C. Schwab's um, post did for me was it made me think of this phrase that I mentioned last time, but I wanted to come back to, and that is Gandalf's reference to the memory of the words that the council came back to me, words of Saruman half-heated at the time. I heard them now clearly in my heart. Um, I made a joke about Gandalf half-heating the words of Saruman at the time, um, but I, um, I wanted to comment on that again because the realization that I had... Um, was that the more I think about it, the more I think that Gandalf's half-heeding of the words of Saruman at the time in the council is sort of a testimony both to Gandalf's... The way that I would read that is as a testimony to Gandalf's humility and also to his determination and focus. Gandalf half-heeds the words of Saruman when Saruman is lecturing about the rings of power. Um, Half-heeding them because... And so I, I don't want to, like... I think... I, I take him to be speaking the literal truth there. Um, he was half-heeding them. What, with what half of his brain was he heeding them? That is, to what extent um, are Saruman, Saruman's words about the, uh, the, the rings of power of half of an interest to Gandalf? They're not of no interest. He's not just bored, Right? Uh, He's half-heeding the words because, of course, the rings of power and the fates of the rings of power, where are they now and might they still be a danger? That is very much of interest to Gandalf, right? And I think that that is the half that he was heeding, right? But the rest of this stuff, the, the, the passage that he quotes, right? The seven, the nine, and the three had each their proper gem, not so the one, um... Why does he care about this? He doesn't care about this. Because remember, he uh, has, he believes Saruman's teaching that the one is out of circulation, right? So therefore, if it is true that the one is inaccessible, it's at the bottom of the sea, it, it's, it swims with the Silmarils, if that's true, then who cares? Who cares? It's, a, it's purely, and to use this word in the pejorative sense in which I don't always use it. I'm always a little sensitive about using it, but it's purely academic what the One Ring looked like, right? Um, And I think it's an interesting contrast between Gandalf and Saruman. I I think that his half-heeding of Saruman's speech, that Saruman is so invested in this question of what are the One Ring, what are the Rings of Power? What were they like? How did they work? Right? This curiosity by Saruman, though not wicked in itself, right? I don't think that it is just like a huge red flag that he cared about rings of power at all. Uh, you know, he was affiliated with Aule, right? He's a maker himself. Like, why shouldn't he be interested in this kind of thing? Um, uh, there's, you know, you could say on the one hand that him being interested in rings of power is no weirder than Gandalf being interested in hobbits. So it's fine, right? Um, but it does show what he was like... But there is a difference that the choice of their subject areas tells you something about them, right? Gandalf becomes interested in this small group of little apparently inconsequential and certainly not powerful, uh, 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 you know, people or advantageous allies or something like that, as far as he knows at the time, right? Um, interested in them essentially for their own sake, whereas Saruman 
studies the lore of the Rings of Power, uh, and it's not a lo- it's not a, a huge step, right, from his academic study uh, and desire to understand the Rings of Power to his desire to make a ring for himself and ultimately to claim uh, the Ring of Power for itself. Um, and I agree, Aslan's Compass, it being Saruman's job to oppose Sauron, ring lore would seem a necessary part of the job. Again, I don't think it's an intrinsically sketchy field of study for him at all. But again, I think it tells us, it shows us something important about the difference in Gandalf's character. He doesn't care about because he thinks it's irrelevant. What does he care about? He cares about fighting Sauron. Right, He cares about preparing the people to resist Sauron. And what gems the rings did or did not have on them, does it matter? No. No. Again, it might if there were ever any chance of finding it, right? But since it's been established and he believes and has sees no reason to question that, it, um, that that's not on the table, then again, it's just an item of curiosity, and it's not a curiosity that he himself shares. Um, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, interesting. Lilith says, Gandalf seems to study allies rather than enemies. Which is, of course, like, studying the enemies totally defensible approach, right? Again, I don't think... I, 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 th- I think we, we, we have to be careful. <clears throat> Again, our, our tendency, I think, this, I mean, what I, what I hear from talking to readers is a tendency to, to sort of see Saruman as, like, totally wrong-headed from the beginning, right? Saruman is just a, a bad egg, right, from beginning to end. Um, but I think it's an important part of Tolkien's like larger picture um, and of the themes of the book, that that is not so. Um, It's dangerous, right? It is perilous, as uh, Elrond is going to go on to say, and we'll get there someday, not too very far down the road. Um, eh, Probably within the next month or two, I bet, uh, to that Elrond quote I'm thinking of here. Um, But, um, uh, but anyway, it's still, still definitely, uh, uh, Definitely defensible. Um, yeah, good. Good. Okay. Um, I agree, Sam, that the seed of his fall was there the whole time. But I would also say the same is true of of, those, of others who don't fall. Um, the seeds of Aragorn's fall are there. The seeds of Gandalf's own fall are there. The seeds of Galadriel's fall are very visible, right? Um, now, they don't fall, right? They don't take that path. But, but it's there. You could see how it could happen, right? They are certainly vulnerable to it. Um, so I absolutely agree that we can see we can see the 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 elements that are going to lead to his. That doesn't mean he's destined to fall, though. And it certainly doesn't mean that in retrospect, all of those things, um, uh, all of those things are necessarily sort of bad from the beginning. Um, <laughs> we get to it before or after Mickey Mouse enters the public domain. Before. That's an easy, that's an easy question. Um, I mean, I tend to think the uh, apocalypse is going to happen before Mickey Mouse enters the public domain, so that's easy. Um, yeah. 
And Murray, I agree that if he were a bad egg from the beginning, he wouldn't have been sent to Middle Earth. That's exactly why it's. Um, that's exactly why I think it's so important to resist that. It's why, why it's important to kind of, in this sense, give Saruman the benefit of the doubt to some extent. Like we have to at least come to understand what he fell from, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Right? A flawed egg does not equal a bad egg. Exactly, right? You can still make scrambled eggs out of a flawed egg. It's all good. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So that's what I just wanted to touch on. The half-heated at the time phrase is the one that I wanted to, to come back to. Um, but let's, uh, let's move on to the next passage. What those marks were, he had not said. Oh, hang on. Let me just reread that last paragraph to make sure we're remembering. So uh, it was round and unadorned, as it were one of the lesser rings. But its maker set marks upon it that the skilled, maybe, could still see and read. Okay, so that's the reference there. What those marks were, he had not said. Who now would know? The maker. And Saruman? But great though his lore may be, it must have a source. What hand save Sauron's ever held this thing ere it was lost? The hand of Isildur alone. With that thought, I forsook the chase and passed swiftly to Gondor. In former days, the members of my order had been well received there, but Saruman most of all. Often he had been for long the guest of the lords of the city. Less welcome did the Lord Denethor show me then than of old and grudgingly he permitted me to search among his hoarded scrolls and books. If indeed you look only, as you say, for records of ancient days and the beginnings of the city, read on, he said. For to me what is, what was is less dark than what is to come, and that is my care. But unless you have more skill even than Saruman, who has studied here long, you will find naught that is not well known to me, who am master of the lore of this city. Okay, now this is a lovely juicy paragraph about Denethor. But let me give a, a, a quick warning here. I don't want to talk about Denethor yet. I want to talk about Gandalf's reasoning first. Then we'll get to Denethor. So if you make comments now about Denethor, I probably won't even see them and they're probably going to get lost. So save it. My advice is save the comments until we get to the Denethor park. So I'm not talking about that first. Okay, so... Gandalf's reasoning here. Again, one might say, how is it that Gandalf is only just now thinking about this? And again, remember what he just described, right? How these words of Saruman's came back to him and how he had not heeded them. And remember, this is why I wanted to start with that, because it's another thing that I kind of struggled with. Like, why? How does it make sense? How does it make sense that Gandalf doesn't think of this years before? like decades before, if his heart was troubled about Bilbo's ring like right after Bilbo found it, why didn't he go on this research trip sooner, right? Um, and it, one thing, Brick, you know, Brick Tales, I don't want to overlook the fact that geography is a non... Um, uh, it's it's a, a non-negligible factor, Right, Gondor is in fact very far away, and Gandalf has many other things to concern him. Uh, so, not taking the time for a jaunt down to Minas Tirith—I don't think that's 
utterly irrelevant. But I have a hard time thinking that in the past, you know, 60 years, it was the 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 primary thing that was dissuading him, right? He would have had time, clearly. Um, but I certainly do agree it was certainly convenient now as they were over essentially in Athelion, right? In the spot where, where Gollum, th- that Gollum had been haunting. Um, and all he had to do was pop across the river and go to Minas Tirith. So it was right across the block right there. Um, but, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, as JJ says, you put it off and put it off. And next thing you know, it's 60 years later. Well, we've all been there, haven't we? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. As for Thoughtless says, he mirrors many a PhD student. He was already on a research trip. He was looking for Gollum, right? It was only when his first plan failed that he thought about a backup plan. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, and it is that failure, right? That as he has just admitted in the previous passage um, that brought it to his mind, right? It was in his despair of finding Gollum that he thought of a test that might make the finding of Gollum unnecessary. Um, And it does make perfect sense, right? His plan A was, you know, we have to figure out the provenance of this ring. So the first logical thing to do is to find, try to find the link, try to connect. Um, You know, if we can find out where Gollum got the ring from, that will give us some clue that we can then follow up to try to figure out what is this ring and where did it come from. It is very much the sensible first step to take, even though it's been decades since Gollum has been heard from. And so it is certainly, as Aragorn says, a hopeless search that they set off on. Um, But it makes perfect sense that upon giving up on that, right, upon despairing of ever finding Gollum, Gandalf sits down and says, what's plan B, right? Plan A, obviously, would be to try to get eyewitness testimony from the person who found the ring before Bilbo. Um, but if we can't do that, is there anything else we could have? And so he thinks of this, right? Um, that um, that makes sense, right? Um, notice also, <laughs> Angus points out that it did take him 90 years to give Thorin his key and map. True enough. True enough. So Gandalf just walking around with stuff either literally or metaphorically in his pocket for decades and decades for the better part of a century. Pretty much par for the wizardly course there. I absolutely agree. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, So, but again, he, uh, um, going back to Saruman's words that he quotes, um, its maker set marks upon it that the skilled, maybe, could still see and read. Um, the maybe is interesting, right? The maybe is interesting because Saruman doesn't know. Saruman doesn't pretend to know. Exactly, right? He states clearly, he, sta- he affirms certainly that the maker set marks upon it, right? It is so, th- th- there's no gem on the one ring, but Sauron marked it, he says unequivocally. And then he speculates, acknowledging that it's a speculation, that those marks might possibly still be seen in red by the skilled, right? Um... Okay, um, so this, uh, yeah, exactly, both Aslan's Compass and Mar- Mariel are both saying, 
it's always worth it to go back to the primary sources. Otherwise, you were re- reliant on someone else's interpretation of it. Exactly. Right. Aslan's Compass is uh, saying uh, uh, very much the same thing here. Um, uh, so Gandalf's line of reasoning is an excellent scholarly line of reasoning. Right. When he remembers Saruman saying that, the, the insight that he has is Saruman has to have learned that somewhere. Right. He hadn't said what the marks were. Who would know? Right? Um, because, of course, this is a very profitable line of reasoning. There are literally only two possible people in the history of Middle-earth who would know what the One Ring looked like, who would have handled it, right? Uh, who would have been able to see the markings on the ring. And these are Sauron and Isildur. Right? Um, and Saruman, apparently? How could Saruman know that? Great though his lore may be, it must have a source. What hand save Sauron's ever held this thing? The hand of Isildur alone. So, logically, he reasons that if Saruman has that kind of detail, if he knows exactly what the ring looked like, and he knows that there were markings on it that were not visible all the time, right? Um, but could become visible at some times, right? Then he has to have gotten that somehow from Isildur. It's the only possible source, right? Um, so... With that thought, I forsook the chase and passed swiftly to Gondor. Because, of course, he also has some other circumstantial evidence. He knows that Saruman spent a lot of time studying in Gondor, right? That he had access. So if if Isildur had, in fact, left a record of exactly what the ring looked like and of any markings on it or something, Saruman easily had access to those records, right? Um, uh, so that's... Excellent reasoning, right? Excellent reasoning that uh, uh, Saruman has to have had a source. Uh, the source could logically really only have been Isildur, which means that that source is almost certain to be kept in Gondor, and Saruman certainly had access to that source. And so, therefore, if I go and try to find that primary source myself, then maybe I can find some way to figure out from the ring itself what uh, what what it is, right? If I can prove or rule out the possibility of its being the one ring just from studying it, right? Because, of course, that would be more direct and simple. Much better than... Because for all he knows the ring has gone through a whole series of owners prior to Gollum. So even if they did find Gollum, that would be only the first step of a long and dubious set of researches for which they are unlikely to find too many sources, right? I mean, what if it turns out that Gollum, you know, inherited inherited it from someone else, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Uh, so, right, Angus, he's skipping from Z to A, essentially. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, exactly. Often he had been for long the guests of the lords of the city. Um, in former days, members of my order had been well-received there, but Saruman most of all. Uh, I saw somebody asking before, members of my order, plural, does that suggest that the blue wizards went to Gondor? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, that or Radagast, right? Uh, I mean, sounds plausible to me. Uh, it's, um, yeah, no, by order, Lalith, uh, Lalith is asking, does he mean the White Council? No, I, when Gandalf talks about his order, he means wizards. That, I think, is pretty certain. I don't have much question about that. Um, um, you may, remembering ahead, right, Gandalf is going to say to Saruman, I cast you from the, uh, from, the, from the order and from the council, right? Those are two separate things. Um, so yes, the order is the order of wizards. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Angra says, were the Astari numbered at this time? Yeah, no, no, they're not yet. In Tolkien's mind, they're not yet. Um, uh, I think that the number is uh, shrinking, right? Um, definitely, definitely shrinking. Um, it's, uh, in, I, I mean, in Tolkien's imagination. In The Hobbit, it's clear there's a fairly large number, right? Um, but um, that number diminishes to five. The number five is never mentioned anywhere in Tolkien's manuscripts until Saruman's reference to the Rods of the Five Wizards. Um, but, uh, uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, it is possible... Uh, 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 that members of my order need not necessarily mean anybody more than just Gandalf and Saruman. I agree. I mean, if if it were just the two of them, that would still be a perfectly appropriate and grammatically appropriate, you know, grammatically accurate sentence. But I don't see, I also don't see any reason to believe that it doesn't refer to others as well. Um, Members of my order had been well received. In former days, members of my order had been well received there. Um, in general, suggests to me like wizards used to come and go, right? Um, which means, in retrospect, once we have defined that there are in fact exactly five wizards, uh, it means. And why wouldn't they? Do we have reason to believe that the blue wizards never did? go to Gondor just because we don't know who they are or where they are now does that mean they never went to Minas Tirith um, even like on their way into the east right like why shouldn't we think that um, uh, yeah yeah um, yeah oh good right uh, Drakon Tarachne is immediately correcting himself and saying actually the reference to Saruman most of all uh, makes it sound like he's referring to more than two people potentially. So yeah, I, I, I think at, at the very least, it's certainly consistent with that idea. I think, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, 
Eruanu says, and by the way, welcome, Eruan. I think I saw earlier that it was your first uh, live class with us. Welcome. Um, says that even given's, given Radagast's preference for the Wildlands, doesn't it seem entirely plausible that he might enter Minas Tirith at some point for some important council or other? He needn't have stayed long and could even have been serving as a messenger. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I don't think there's... It seems to me, I don't know, something almost like typecasting, right? Like a kind of... Uh, uh, assumptions that we make, right? That the blue wizards are in the east and that that's where they've always been. Like what? They weren't born there, right? They traveled there. They, they didn't even pass through Minas Tirith on the way and be welcomed by the stewards. Um, or the, the um, or Radagast also, right? Okay, yes, okay. He does hang out with birds and beasts, like always, exclusively, like never, like, do we know that Radagast has a, a firm personal rule never to interact with humans? No, of course we don't know that, right? We know almost nothing about him. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, exactly. Um, that's right, and Bjorn, right? But, but see, Bjorn barely counts, right, at the beginning. Um, uh yeah. Anyway, okay. So, um, any and the only the only time we ever encounter him, he's acting as a messenger. Exactly. Now, Bruce, I wouldn't say that that suggests that that like Radagast as messenger is like normal, right? Um, Radagast feels like a rather unlikely messenger when Gandalf meets him, but we'll get there before too long. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, I agree, Gilgonthir, that we do tend to kind of pigeonhole, like when, when we only get a tiny little bit of information about characters, uh, we tend to kind of take the bit that we get uh, and kind of, as you say, use that to sort of pigeonhole uh, folks in our minds. I do think that that tends to happen. So with Radagast, for instance, um, why mightn't, why shouldn't he have at some point also have been a, um, uh, you know, come into Minas Tirith and studied there at times, uh, you know, he could well have done so. Um, yeah. Yeah. I do agree for Thoughtless that uh, Radagast with a hyperspeed bunny sled would in fact make a good messenger. I agree. That was, uh, 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 Jackson did at least make his, uh, messenger status more plausible by giving him a uh, supersonic bunny sled. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, let's talk about Denethor now. Okay. Less welcome did the Lord Denethor show me than show me than of old. And grudgingly, he permitted me to search among his hoarded scrolls and books. I think here... So, there are two possible ways to read that sentence. Less welcome did the Lord Denethor show me then than of old. Um, it could mean Denethor was less welcoming to me on this occasion than Denethor had been on previous occasions when I had been to Minas Tirith. I found that my welcome with Denethor had declined over the years that Denethor had been steward. That is one reading. The other is that Denethor, Tony, as you say, showed me less welcome than his predecessors were wont to show to members of my order. Um, that is, either one of those things would 
make sense as far as the text is, as far as that passage is concerned. Like syntactically, that would work for either one. Um, I don't think that we yeah, the courtesy of your hall is somewhat lessened of late, Denethor. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, says Nahor on Twitch. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, Bruce, we do find out later that Gandalf knew Faramir, but that's later, right? Um, <clears throat> that's like after, you know, Faramir exists and stuff. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, so, okay. Uh, I, um, yeah, I think in this context, it means Denethor contrasted with his predecessors. That's my sense of it. Um, do we have any evidence from this chapter, mind, not from later? Um, not from the return of the king, but from this passage that Gandalf has ever been to Minas Tirith in Denethor's time. I don't think we do. Um, I don't think we do. And if we don't, th- th- here's the reason that I'm saying that. If Gandalf, if there's been no allusion to like Boromir knowing Gandalf to Gandalf saying that he's been there before and that kind of thing. Um, if if there's been no reference to that, then Gandalf would be unlikely to say this meaning that, right? I mean, if you're saying, show me, then, then of old, you know, you know that other time I was there, like 20 years before? Um, if he's not made any reference in this room on this day to the other people, in the, then he would be making a reference to something that nobody could possibly understand what he was referring to, except possibly Boromir who might remember it. Right. Um, or others who might happen to know that it happened. So, um, I, I think that he would have to, if he meant an earlier meeting with Denethor, it would have to be in conjunction with, in reference to a previous, something that would, if he hadn't said it, it wouldn't make sense. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I see. A, a, I don't know how to say your name. Nadedimki, I think. Yes, this is a live stream. Sorry, I can see that you're new. Uh, yeah, we're, this is a very in-depth discussion of the Lord of the Rings text. Okay. Um, so, um, so yeah. So, I think this is Denethor compared to his predecessors. Um and grudgingly, he permitted me to search among his hoarded scrolls and books. Uh, the word hoarded is a little bit um, weighted, right? It's not an absolutely damning word. Um, I mean, an archive kind of is a hoard, right? I mean, let's be honest about that, right? There's no question that an archive is a hoard. and uh, uh, but But I agree... Mad Violinist, it's exactly right. It is not dragon neutral. And as several of you are um, are pointing out, it, it's it's there's something dragonish, right? Uh, uh, we 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 
are forced to think of dragons. And so if he is even indirectly and gently comparing Denethor's relationship with his scrolls and books to a dragon's relationship to his treasure, it's not a good look, right? Um, ha! Uh, yeah, he's a bookworm, uh, Tony says. Yeah, that's uh, exactly right. That's exactly it. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. That's, um, Tony, you know what that says to me? Bookworm? With a Y, of course, W-Y-R-M. Um, that says to me, license plate, right? Come on, right? To be like an archivist with a license plate that says bookworm, uh, that's, you know, oh man. Um, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, exactly. Mudmore suggests spelling it B-U-K-W-Y-R-M. Yeah, because you generally need seven letters, yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um for Thalys, I agree. It's not my, that was my, my, uh, if I had gotten my top choice of uh, license plates in New Hampshire, I would have chosen Hrududu, uh, for my license plate, but, uh, that was taken in New Hampshire. Darn whoever took that license plate in New Hampshire. Uh, but, um, anyway, I, so I went with, uh, uh, decided to represent instead. Um, but, um, uh, though there's somebody who lives on my street who has a Luthien license plate. Uh, I've, I've been driving behind that person several times, but I've never been able to have a conversation with them without like following them to their house in a threatening looking way. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, um, okay. Uh, more on Denethor. So, okay. So we we get two gentle criticisms of Denethor uttered in his, in Gandalf's first sentence before he quotes him, right? Um, Less welcome did the Lord Denethor show me then than of old, and grudgingly he permitted me to search among his hoarded scrolls and books. He did permit it, right? But he permitted it grudgingly. And he's, so he's contrasting Denethor with uh, the former days in which the members of his order had been well received there, and Saruman most of all. Often he had been for long the guest of the lords of the city. Um, but um, uh, I... It's not a strong indictment of Denethor. At the very least, Gandalf is being politic here. Um, and uh, the... Because I was thinking of the same thing, Angrist, about recalling Boromir's boast. He boasted of his father's lore, you know, uh, that how he approached Denethor, wise in the lore of Gondor, right? Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, he is um, uh, certainly being diplomatic uh, and not wanting to just rip into Denethor right away. Um, thus, Marielle says, to be fair to Denethor, any archivist is grudging. Uh, yes, yes, uh, it is, it is, it is true. And certainly, you know, Marielle, it is for that reason that, um, the whole, 
uh, archive as hoard thing kind of kind of I mean, that shaft goes home, doesn't it? A little bit. I mean, I've known a lot of archivists uh, who are a little bit dragonish. Right. Um, uh, you know, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but anyway, um, he quotes Denethor. So let's just pause a second, right? Um, pause a second to think, just observe that fact. He doesn't have to quote Denethor here, right? It's a little bit out of his way, in a sense, uh, for him to... Um, uh, for him to quote Denethor directly. <laughs> Musical says, and he was like, if indeed you look only... Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much what Gandalf says. But um, he doesn't have to quote this necessarily, right? Gandalf is choosing a direct quotation. And um, I think that he is quoting him in order to be diplomatic. I think that he wants to provide evidence, but he doesn't want to say things about Denethor. He's just going to quote Denethor and let people draw their own conclusions, right? Um, exactly, Musical. If, if he just says things about Denethor, then, you know, he uh, um, could be accused of rudeness at the least, right? Insult, perhaps, which would be a big deal uh, with Boromir sitting right there, doubtless uh, uh, staring very fixedly at him during this point in the conversation. Um, but, uh, but instead, if he quotes him, that's a very disarming thing to do, right? Because it, it invites all of everybody listening, including us, of course, to draw our own conclusions about Denethor and Denethor's angle and Denethor's motivation. But it doesn't say anything. So it puts the pressure on Boromir. Like, Boromir can't be offended by something that his dad said, unless he's going to accuse Gandalf of lying about it, um, uh, which, as we've talked about before, would be a very extreme thing for him, very extreme accusation for him to make. Um, but um, uh, but it's, unless he's going to accuse him of lying, he can't be like, you take that back! Like, it's it's what your father said, right? What, are you saying that it was uh, there was something wrong with what your father said? Is that what you're assuming by getting angry about it? Uh, so it's, it, it's very cunning uh, in that way. Um but, um, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Matt, I agree with you. There is an interesting parallel between Denethor's focus and Boromir's focus. Um, Denethor says, If you look only as you say for records of ancient days and the beginnings of the city, read on. For to me, what was is less dark than what is to come. And that is my care. Right. Uh, so so yeah, he's saying, like, uh, let's focus on, uh, as Matt was suggesting, um, we're focusing on what Gondor is doing and what Gondor needs to do. Right. The task that Gondor has and how we're going to uh, to accomplish that task um, rather than, you know, quaint historical questions. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Now, uh, Cook of Wooten Minor asks, did Gandalf deceive Denethor? Well, no, it doesn't sound like he deceived him, but it does not also sound like he was explicit about this, right? I do not, it seems pretty clear that Gandalf did not go to Denethor and says, hi, I found a ring, which I think might be the one ring, but I need to confirm that, and I think the evidence for that is in your archives. Can I go look? Right? Clearly, that was not his approach, right? Um, he came and asked permission to search among his hoarded scrolls and books, right? Um, he Gandalf says that Denethor says that Gandalf said that he searched for records of ancient days and the beginnings of the city, right? So Gandalf says, hey, can I look something up in the archive? And could you direct me to the section of the archives that covers primary, uh, primary writings of Isildur, right? Uh, can you can you show me to the Isildur section, please? Uh, that's uh, that's that's what um, that's what he would have said. And so I, I don't think so. Angus, I don't think that he's been more coy than that. Um, I, I I think that that's all that he has to. Uh, I think that that that's all that he has to ask for, and he'll be able to find what he's looking for. Um, uh, yeah, exactly, Aslan's Compass. He's not lying about it. Um, he's not even tr- attempting to deceive. He's just making a broader statement uh, than... He's not giving the specifics of what he's researching. <laughs> Which has certainly been true in many research trips in the history of scholarship, I can tell you. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Mariel points out that Denethor might resent any idea that a wizard is interfering in his direction of the war effort, as might be the case if he was asking for reports on the recent war effort or something like that. Yeah. Um, Gandalf coming into town sounds like it's unwelcome to Denethor, right? That he's not overly thrilled about this. Um, certainly that's the impression that Gandalf has given. Um Mariel, it does make sense that he would be more on guard against Gandalf's, you know, um, uh, any interference into current events, right? Um, if you're just doing research on stuff that happened 3,000 years ago, that doesn't sound too intrusive. Fine. That's fine. Right? That's fine. Um, uh yeah, Gallandar points out that it's possible that he might be less than thrilled because Gandalf hasn't come to help in the war effort. Yeah, yeah. Um, I. What does he fear about Gandalf? Well, we don't know that. Uh, we don't know exactly, other than that he is someone who is here for reasons of his own that he is not revealing. Right? I mean. Not to say that he's he's assuming that Gandalf is going to, uh, you know, be an agent of the enemy or something like that. But it's possible that he knows that Gandalf is a friend of Thorongil. That's possible. That's possible. Um, and of course, in retrospect, based on what Denethor says later on, it seems likely. But that's only from the full retcon lens, basically. The whole Thorongil story was certainly not invented at the time Tolkien wrote this. Uh, but from the full retcon perspective, I think that, yes, that, seemed, that, that I think is true. Yeah, Michael D. says it's more mistrust than fear, and that seems fair to me as well. Um, yeah, 
Good. Um, one of the things... I was realizing there are two ways to take another one of Denethor's sentences there. For to me, what was is less dark than what is to come, and that is my care. I'd always read that as him referring to darkness as, like, dark and evil and sinister, right? As That is, as if Gandalf, or Denethor is saying to Gandalf, I'm not, I don't have any worries about the past, right? I'm worried about the future. So I'm going to focus on the future. If you want to piddle around with the past there in the archives, that's fine, Right. But there's, of course, another way to take dark in this sort of scholarly context here, and that is hard to understand. Exactly, Mary. Unclear. Uh, th- th- the, the, um, uh, the word dark is used in that way when the lines about the paths of the dead are quoted, right? Um, uh, you know, dark may be, but not as, uh, but, but uh, you know, not as dark as those staves are to me, says, uh, says Gimli. Um, uh, those staves are dark to him in the sense that he can't understand them, right? He, he cannot cast any light upon them. Um, exactly. Unknown or unknowable, Karita, that's exactly it. If he means dark in that sense, right, then the sentence, it's similar, but it, it's, the shade is, is, is kind of different there, right? For to me, what was is less dark than what is to come. What was is less dark than what is to come. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I know about the past. I am the. Did, hasn't my son ever told you that I am the master of the lore of this city? Right. I know everything about the past of Gondor. I have studied my hoarded scrolls and books. Right. What was is not dark. Right. So if you are trying to be helpful. Here, I mean, not necessarily helpful to me, like, whatever, you're doing your own thing. But if you're trying to contribute to the, you know, fight here, to the good fight, um, you're unlikely to do much good, right? So, it, it, basically, it, uh, it, it sounds basically like, if he means dark in the sense of unclear or unknown, um, then I would paraphrase, so, the... the Dark in, ter- in, in the sense of, like, scary and evil, I would paraphrase his sentence to mean, I'm less worried about the past than I am about the future, right? The dark as in unknown uh, or unclear, I would paraphrase the sentence to mean, um, go ahead and waste your time learning stuff we already know. Um, it's the future we should be trying to figure out, Right. Uh, so, you know, the first one he's saying, basically both of them kind of come down to, you're wasting your time, dude, right? Like, this is not going to help. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't know that, you know, the trying to decide which sense of the word dark he means necessarily has a massive impact uh, on the line. Um, But it does have a different impact on his character, right? Um, If he means dark in the sense of evil and scary, to me, what was is less dark than what is to come. Um, I am less afraid of the past than I am of the future, right? That sounds like a kind of a scolding statement to Gandalf, like you're being frivolous, 
right? Um, uh, but if he's saying, I am the master of the past, um, we should be seeking to master the future instead, that's more arrogant, right? It's, it puts him in a different kind of position in that way, um, which I think would be an interesting thing for his, uh, for his character. Um, yeah, yeah. So several people are asking, is Denethor already using the Palantir at this point? Um, uh, so if by this point you mean at this date in the Third Age, yes, I believe that he is using the Palantir at this stage. If by at this point you mean when Tolkien was writing this passage, no, because the idea of the Palantiri had not emerged yet when he was writing this uh, this passage of the text. Um, so both, again, as we've seen on several other occasions. Um, <clears throat> but, um, but Matt, I do agree that there would be a significant amount of pride or hubris in Denethor telling a wizard what's a wise approach and what isn't, right? And that would be even more amplified if he's using the word dark in the sense of unclear, right? The past is an open book to me because I've opened the books already, right? I already know this stuff. So if you want to waste your time trying to play catch up with me, right? If there were useful things to, to, to glean uh, from the histories of Gondor that I have in my archive, I'd have done it, Gandalf, right? So don't you be, you know, poking your bushy eyebrows in my archive because you're just not going to do any good. I mean, th- that's, the, that's the dynamic of it. It's a little bit more arrogant. It's a little bit more competitive. Whereas if he, if he just means dark in the sense of evil and scary, there's prudence there, right? I mean, he's not wrong to say, look, um, can, we, can we focus on what matters? Like, look, I'm all in support of research trips and stuff, right? And, you know, um, learning is excellent, but uh, is it really our top priority right now, Gandalf? Isn't there something more productive you could be doing? Now, of course, you know, knowing what Denethor does not, of course, we know this is a very productive research trip indeed, but still, it would be a sensible question, right? It would be defensible for a thing who, for a person who is just a, a conscientious leader of his people in a time of crisis, right? Would make um, uh, would would make a lot of sense, right? For him to for him to do that, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, good. Fort Thoughtless is pointing out that where Saruman, or where, sorry, Denethor was going to come back to, but unless you have more skill even than Saruman, who has studied here long, you will find naught that is not well known to me, who am master of the lore of this city, does support the idea of it, be, of him meaning dark in the sense of unclear. Um, yes. Even if he were not um, being actively arrogant to Gandalf in the previous day. He's clearly being actively arrogant now, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, 
Right. JJ says it, it would be kind of like someone coming to visit the Vatican's archives during World War II. Um, you know, it's like permitted, but uh, maybe you don't have your priorities quite straight. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a good parallel. Um, and Tony, he is giving credit to Saruman that he wouldn't give to Gandalf. But I think he's also needling Gandalf here. I think that... Um, I think that unless you have more skill even than Saruman, who has studied here long, you will find not that is not well known to me. Um, I think... Um, I'm trying to decide whether I think he's making a shot at Gandalf here, right? Um, trying to to needle him with a reference to his superior, assuming that Gandalf is going to have some kind of like inferiority complex where Saruman is concerned, which I think would reveal more about Denethor's perspective than it would reveal about Gandalf's, of course. Um, but um, yeah. Yeah. Um, or accusing Gandalf of pride? I mean, JJ, you were just paraphrasing it. Do you think you're going to find something Saruman missed? Yeah. And I was reading your comment there, JJ, and thinking, do you think you're going to find something Saruman missed? Right? Which would be like, yeah, you know, you're, oh, hang on, Gandalf, you're not actually claiming to be a better scholar than Saruman, are you? Right? Surely we can both acknowledge, Gandalf, in your more honest moments, that you're not better than Saruman is. Right? Um, maybe. Now, I, I think that might be going too far. I'm not sure that we can... Even if there is no rivalry yet between Gandalf and Saruman, I could believe that Denethor might perceive there, or assume that there were one, just because he himself is obviously like in his cold reception of Gandalf in the, um, the edge that his words have throughout this quotation. There is, I think definitely an air of rivalry of, um, sort of threat, right. That he feels in some way threatened some uh, level of competition in a sense, um, with, um, with Gandalf, Right, that there's 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 definitely tension there, on Denethor's part, whatever the source of it might be. Um, so, uh, therefore, I can easily imagine if Denethor is the kind of person to bristle like this, when somebody like Gandalf comes into town, it's not hard for me to for to to think that he would project this kind of rivalry or sense of inferiority on Gandalf himself. Right as assuming that other people are feeling insecure and uh, threatened and needing to um, prove themselves is a pretty good sign that you are insecure and feeling the need to prove yourself. Right? I mean, that's that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty observable pattern. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. But, however, I, I do think it's possible to read his words there quite neutrally. 
Unless you have more skill even than Saruman, who has studied here long, you will find not that it's not well known to me, who am master of the lore of this city. Here's the other way that I take that last part. You will find not that it's not well known to me, who am master of the lore of this city. Is he just, is he just flexing here? Is he just like, like, you know, again, being one of those insecure people who is like, and by the way, have I mentioned that I am totally a lore master when it comes to this city, right? Uh, like, just because that's how he rolls, right? Because he's insecure. Um, I think, yeah, JJ, that's exactly how I interpret it. Dude, if you're looking for something, why not just... I think he's probing here. I think that he's pushing Gandalf to come clean about his research project, right? I bet I could save you some time, Gandalf, right? If there's something that you're interested in, give me more details about what it is that you're looking for, and I can probably help you. Now, that's probably true, right? But um, I think he's fishing there. Um, uh, I think he's fishing. Um Yeah, yeah. Um, JJ says it, 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 that might help to explain his attitude a little. He's confused and perhaps a little insulted that Gandalf isn't discussing his research project with him. Yes. Even if he is not himself already... I agree that I don't think we have to imagine that Denethor looks out his window, sees Gandalf approaching up the street... And start sneering, like, oh, here's that Mithrandir again, right? You know, what a troublesome, you know, nosy Parker that guy is, right? I don't think that we have to assume. He might be thinking that. But I don't think that we have to assume that he's thinking that. Um, I think that he... um, uh, He could be responding to... He would have legitimate reason to find Gandalf's approach fishy or at least in some way questionable, right? I mean, not necessarily... It's not like it's strange. It's not like it's unknown in any way for a researcher to be closed-mouthed about what they're looking to find, right? Um, but uh, but Gandalf is keeping secrets... That Gandalf is keeping secrets is going to be perfectly obvious, even explicit, right? Um this speech that Gandalf is quoting might follow after Denethor has asked explicitly, what are you looking for? And Gandalf gave an obviously evasive answer. Oh, I'm just, uh, I'm looking for records of ancient days in the beginnings of the city. Right? Okay. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that, uh, that he, Denethor's suspicion might be very warranted here. There's something... He's obviously not telling me something, and I think it's probably important, and, um... Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um... So that's an interesting angle on this, too. Uh... So now I come back... I want to come back again to the question... Why has Gandalf quoted this? I've said that it would be diplomatic to do a direct quote rather than casting aspersions on Denethor directly. 
Denethor greeted me unkindly and with frank suspicion, right? He could just say that, right? But then Boromir could bristle, so better to just show the suspicion and leave everybody to draw their own conclusions. I agree. But why say it at all? He doesn't have to, right? Why, ha- why, why do it at all? Okay, he needed to establish that he's looking for the source, Saruman's source. Uh, so he is going to Minas Tirith. Um, Denethor's words do contain an allusion to the fact that Saruman studied here long and so provide evidence that he is on the right, that he, Gandalf, is on the right track, right? So it's relevant, but he could have just said that. He could have just been like, Denethor confirmed that Saruman had studied here for a long time, so I knew I was on the right track, and I went to the archive, and it, and he could have been completely neutral about Denethor. But he's introduced this whole, Denethor and I had a bit of a tense moment, right? When he didn't seem to need to introduce that at all. Um... I'm thinking, and now, Katrina, I agree with you. Katrina says, you don't show up to the premier archive of Middle-earth and ask to see the rarest of rare books without reasons. Uh, you, ju- you don't do that just to browse. Um, agreed. I'd go to the British Library sometime and say, like, hey, can I, um, can I see the Beowulf manuscript? Can I just hang out with the band? I, 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 would, I would just, I, I hadn't read Beowulf in a while, so I'd just like to read the, you know, the manuscript. If, I, if it's no big deal, right? They're not going to let you see it, right? You need a reason uh, to, 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 to see that. Um, so, yes. Um, uh, and yes, he is about to say, so said Denethor, emphasizing that this was Denethor's own, own words unvarnished. Um I'm thinking that one of the reasons... So, in trying to answer the question, why would Gandalf give us this questionable Denethor, or like this interlude of Denethor being questionable, right? Or being unpleasant, or being suspicious, even if it's warranted suspicion, an understandable suspicion. Why would he do it? Why do we get this? Um... Why questions like this can always be answered on multiple levels. Why would Gandalf insert it? Why is it relevant to the Council of Elrond? Why would Tolkien want us to hear this in the way that Tolkien is choosing to unfold his story? There are lots of different kinds of answers to that sort of why question, right? Um, Remember that one thing that I was suggesting earlier on is that Gandalf is um, setting up. He's preparing the audience. He's foreshadowing the treason of Isengard, right? Um, He's not yet fully explained about Saruman's treachery, but he's alluded to it indirectly, and so is Elrond, right? So that people know something like the the bombshell hasn't happened yet but it's coming and they can tell that it's coming right is there something similar that's happening here um that could he even be using this 
the suspicion of Denethor, the unwelcomingness of Denethor and the suspicion of Denethor to be a kind of a warm-up act for the way he's going to be received by Saruman. Right? Like, don't always assume that your allies are going to be on the same page with you or even that they're truly your 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 allies. Right, exactly. Continuing his hints, as Tarloniel suggests, uh, that everyone who's supposed to be on our side may not actually be on our side. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because um, I do think, Tony, that there is a parallel that he, that is established here between Denethor and Saruman. Um, I tend to go pretty far here in thinking that one of the things that he, Gandalf, wants to report is to the council, like to everybody present. Um, red flag on Denethor of Minas Tirith, okay? Like, just, so we've, uh, we're, I've already learned a harsh lesson about treachery, right? It turns out Saruman has been against us this whole time, so we should be careful, right? So I would like everyone to make a note, right, that uh, Denethor, think twice about that, right? There's, things could go either way. Not making any accusations, right? Not trying to say he's in league with the enemy or anything like that, but um, warning, danger, right? But Boromir is right there, right? Boromir is sitting right there. He can't make any accusations or even implications, right? So what does he do? Instead, I'm going to do a direct quotation which shows Denethor being questionable, right? And then I'll let everybody draw their own conclusions. Exactly. He is a situation that bears watching, Katriana. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, because you're right, uh, Cook of Wooten Minor, it is a very, it is this is a question that's going to be very relevant soon, right? It's possible. Gandalf knows where this council's headed. He's one of the only people in the room who knows exactly where it's headed to the question of what do we do with the ring of power now that we have it, right? Um, one obvious suggestion is going to be Minas Tirith. Somebody in the room might, just might, suggest sending the ring to Minas Tirith. So Gandalf wants to kind of um, put something in advance for that, right? Um, maybe we'll want to be cautious about that before we even go there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but definitely doing so without saying anything that could possibly offend Boromir, Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. With that, we've come to the end of an entire slide with a discussion of uh, a, a discussion board comment and a long preambulatory discussion of uh, uh, possible publication outcomes from our discussion. So I think we've accomplished a lot tonight. Uh, so thanks everybody for joining me. It's field trip time. Uh, we're going to be, um, 
uh, we're going to be sh- I'm going to be shifting uh, to Twitch. I'm going to uh, say goodbye to the folks on Twitter and to the folks on the town, and we're going to be going to uh, uh, Twitch only here. So thanks everybody, and uh, st- feel free to stay tuned for our field trip. Good evening. Good evening. Yeah, you wonder if Gandalf had this whole big complaint lined up. It's like, oh, let me tell you about Denethor. Ah, oh, dang. But, you know, you saw Boromir there going, Well, oh, exactly. Okay. Treat, 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 yeah. Treat. No, I was thinking that exactly. That he, because, you know, I mean, he's, this, this could well be an adjustment on his part, right? Because he might have had a whole speech to be like, we, you know, now we know. Okay, so we're headed to, uh, we're headed back to Angmar, of course. Let's meet outside uh, Gathforth near as yep. usual. I'm just going to yes. go straight there. Um Exactly. So, so he was like, okay, first I'm going to explain to them, you know, so in Gandalf's own notes, right? First I'm going to explain to him about how Saruman has betrayed us. And then I'm going to tell them in detail that I think Denethor, man, like, things are... Might be some issue there. <laughs> there there's like, you know, things are balanced on the edge of a knife with Denethor, right? And then he shows up at the meeting and holy cow, there's Boromir sitting right there. I better rewrite yeah. that speech. At that point, he just rips up the card and throws it away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's think of, let's brainstorm ways I can do this. That will be, yeah. Mm-hmm. JJ, which part of Angmar? So we, uh, we're looking around Barad Gularon. If so, can someone help me remember? Because I've forgotten. It's been so long since I've done questing here in Angmar. Can we get inside Barad Gularon without without the relevant quests, or are those is that is it only quest entrance into any of the entrances in Barad Gularon? I don't remember. I think you can go in because it's a deed to kill them all, but I don't think it's a quest. But I'm not positive on my okay recollection there. Yeah, I don't know. Is it an an, an instance, Edith? I really just don't remember. I like I said, it's been literally years now since I really did any Angmar quests. Mm-hmm. I keep meaning to come back because, you know, I I like to be, uh, uh, I like to be, you know, I, to, to be a completionist. Um, but uh, there's so many things in Angmar that are, of course, fellowship only, so, or raid only. Yeah. It's a, Angmar is not a very satisfying region for solo completionists. Unless you're like level 90 or something. <laughs> right. Exactly. Maybe that's what I'll do. Maybe I'll come back and do a completionist Angmar when I'm like level 120 or something. That'd be fun. All right, well, let's see if we can get in in the first place. Pukimojo says, I believe you can get into a couple of the towers without a quest, but they may be empty. Um, Well, that's okay. Presumably, they won't actually be empty. That is, there will be furniture, rugs, you know, wall hangings. Oh, yeah, sorry. So we're at Gathforth near. It's a fighting pit. It's a fighting pit, usually. Fighting pit. There we go. See, lots of things to look at. Yay, fighting Um, pits. Yes. Um, okay, yeah, so the, for those of you who are joining us, we're outside of Gathforth near and headed over to Barad Gularan. All right, so I think we're gonna, we shouldn't wait for too much longer. Got a bunch of people who come with us here, so we're going to head out 
and down. So I think last time you looked at Mina's cowl. Right. And we were looking at that fascinating orcish banner. Yep. Okay, so Mina's cowl requires a quest, says Druid's Fire. Okay. But we'll keep looking around. Okay. And so now, folks were reminding me last time, there are supposed to be different, like, emissaries of different, like, evil potential allies that are coming to, yeah, other, yeah, yeah, dark factions, as you say. That's better than evil allies. Um, uh, Coming into, like, why? And from, so, what are we supposed to, like, understand by this? Like, what's the bigger Uh, story? So, like, the, you know, new Angmar is setting up shop again. And so what they've sent out emissaries, um, they've sent out emissaries to all of the different folks to say what? Come join us? Or, like, let's all plot together? Or... Establish our presence in the north is probably the going... Right. Right. Because you, yeah, you know, remember, if his most of his stuff is concentrated in the east, he needs a huge boost in numbers. Right. Whoa. I mean, okay. you just look up those places. Last week, when we came over that hill and the weather changed, I could suddenly see Baragularan really clearly. This week, when we came over the hill, now I suddenly can't see it at all. Yeah, it's it, like, too dark. It completely and... vanished from my view there. I think we have low visibility. Yeah, well, it's nighttime, so going yeah, around it's nighttime. Going around Angmar at night is never a a real yeah. ticket to high visibility. But we we don't have the sort of glowing red sky tonight. We have you know advanced darkness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's see. So, if we go around the base here, uh-huh. can we get... I seem to remember getting up to the different towers is really frustrating. Because, oh yeah, we got to go up around in order to get in, right? Yeah, we got to go across some of those bridges. So, we need Oops. to get, like, up this cliff somehow? Uh, no, most of them are ramps. Most of them are passage ramps that go around. It's sort of weaves in and out like a flower petal. Do we have to go around this way, though? I have a vague memory of going around I, this I way. I think we missed the turn-off the first one. Oh, did we? Of course we did. Yeah, the turn-offs are really... Wait, yeah, here's one. I found one. Okay. Okay, yeah, this is a way. Alright. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's one of them. Okay. Okay, now here we're getting... Alright. Now, see, here's another banner. And this banner... Uh Uh-huh. Oh, that's really interesting. Notice how we have the orange slices, which is clearly the the Trey Duverdain. I thought we declared that they were the Numenorean ones because we saw them off of, uh, like, like, Everswim... Right, but I think that we were seeing some of the Trave Duverdine there, too. 
that was my conclusion that I was drawing from that. I didn't see any trade duper dine up there. I mostly saw only the the, the black Numenorians. But there are Angmarim there, right? Uh, yeah, the the ones in the robes. Right, which I think are trave duver yes. based on my theory That's from right. the last time. That's right. That's They're right. They're like converted trave duver or reconverted trave duver or drafted. <laughs> yeah, or like the new order of like they are the new Angmar. Meh. They are the new Angmar. Anyway. Yeah. But there are also skulls, which we didn't see before. Um, yes. That banner, the Iron Crown banner, that looks like a simple orcish banner that we've seen before. Yeah, it kind of does. Uh, I think we saw this banner also in their civilization next to Karnu. Yeah. Yeah. I like how the skulls are with the little signums. It's a nice touch. Yeah, it's kind of... it's. It's interesting. I mean, it's like it's a little bit, you know, goblinish, but it's not, you know, sort of very pronounced. I think these skulls are cleaner than anything we see in goblin stuff. Yes, yes. These are lovingly cared for skulls. Yeah, and notice how they're all like, their faces are all turned down. Like you can't see their, you just see their crania. See what uh, I mean? Like you can tell that they're skulls, but when you look yeah, at them. Yeah. They're not. They're not set up like. They're not sp- like spiked so that the faces are staring straight at you. They're just kind of hanging down. See what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's almost like uh, that. Uh, it was more important that the ocular cavities were secured to something good. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The skulls are all looking, staring up, um, which is an in- interesting symbolically, JJ. Right. Like they're all the. Sc- Hang on. Was that even true? No. I was just going to say it's like the skulls are all looking up at the banner, but I don't think they are, because no, some of them are looking up above the banner. They're just all yeah. looking up at the sky. The skulls. It's, they're more functionally arranged. Yeah. And it's not the same kind of, like, leering skull grinning at you that we get on so many goblin banners and things. It's there for a head count more than presentation. Right. Yeah, or at least it's a different priority of presentation. I'd yeah, say. it's showing the efficiency in what they do. <laughs> yeah. This is Minas Agar. Minas Agon? Agar. Agar. Ah, so it is. Right on. Now, um, so we've got the spiky bits, which is interesting because it is uh, it looks to be a direct parody of the Numenorean spiky bits, you know, at the top of oh, towers, yeah. like in Anuminous. And it's yeah. exactly those, you know, like the fish hook metal and stuff that we've been seeing. Um, the, 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 the new Angmarim spikes that we've noticed yeah. all over the place. That um, shiny purple metal. And those are what form the mock Numenorean spikes. Yes. Which suggests that the folks who are making it are either A like black Numenorians themselves or B um, like anti-Numenorian you know like Uh. we're gonna one up you Numenorian schmoes right with our (laughs) but now I agree JJ's pointing out that it looks like they could be wings up at the top 
um, the way that these the, the kinds of spikes that they're putting up there um, uh, yeah. yeah yeah it is interesting because there are different patterns of these kinds of uh, uh, you know this spiky business um, yeah yeah JJ says it reminds him of the the winged helms that the Gondorian guards have yeah there yeah. we go I was wondering why it's nothing. Yeah, it does look like that. Um, Okay. Well, let's see if we can go in. Hang on, wait. Let's look over here. Now, these shields we've seen before, is this exactly like the bank of shields that we saw in Alkair? I think it is. Yes. Yeah, including the the little symbols on the banner and the Triscale. Yeah. And the, the white worm. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Um, so this shows the, you know, the cultural connection between them and the Trave Galorg there in Alkair. But we still also have the... Oh, no, it's not letting me use the door. Sadly. Oh, boo. I, I, I know me, myself, I've already been through here. It's part of the epic quest line, I believe, to take on the ambassadors. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it won't let me, yeah. Yeah. Matter of yeah. fact, I did that with Flory with uh, with Weekend. Right, right, yes, back in the Mythgard Mondays days. Yep. Yeah, it's probably in. Well, I don't remember which book it is, but of course, as you can see, I'm on book seven, having uh, just finished. I think the, we're seven. Yeah. Yeah. Get past the. I could probably get up there, but. Um. If I recall, most of the stuff in there, it was just a fighting pit, and then your enemy would come at you. Right. Do you think these doors are meant to look like the prow of a ship? I've always thought they looked like it. Yeah, they kind of do. I mean, it's a little bit odd to have a kind of, like, three-dimensional door in that way. Like, you get a flat wall, and then the door... I mean, the door is actually convex. Doors it implies there's a two sets of doors, an outer door and an inner door. Yeah. That's that's the only way that would be practical. Yeah. Or maybe a portcullis behind it set into the wall. Right. Right. It's a good rain shield. <laughs> Wonder what the fins are for. Are those just eldritch decoration or well, it looks like it in the, you know, in the light of the, you know, you've got the way you've got the spikes above the door, just like the ones yeah. on the first two floors up there, then leading up to the more wing-like spikes up at the top. Um, looks like the baleen of a whale, like it's going to filter out plankton in it. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> JJ suggests it could be cooling fins as evil architecture generates a lot of heat. Speed holes makes the cargo faster. <laughs> it is, Paul. All right, let's go. If it's not too far around, let's go and look for at least one more door. Not because I have much hope that we'll be able to get in, uh, but because, can we go? Oh, there's another road over here. Well, it seems to be something yeah. more or less of a cliff, but I think we can go around. Yeah, like it's like a flower petal, so you gotta go out and you gotta go around and back in. Right, 
Because what I am interested in looking at is the other banners. Now, these banners we did see in the villages. Yes. And now here, thinking about my theory, this, the red color, right, that surrounds the crown, um, and which has all that fancy frill work that doesn't look like the rest of their art, um, is, of course, the same color as the cargoals there. I mean, it's like the cargoal shade of red. Oh, um, yeah. And so the, red, yeah. The whole thing has the effect, especially from a distance, of like the red of the cargoal kind of spreading out from the crown, right? Uh-huh. Which symbolically and sort of thematically fits. Oh, why do they build this little this little yurt out here? Who are these? Uh, I've oh, seen these, these, are the so these are the pale, pale people. Folk. Yeah, I've, I've seen these used to capture uh, capture people. Right, they've got slits. They look like little golems, but maybe with except they got hair. They do. They do. Um, are these like arrow slits at various height? Are they observation slits? I so it's just meant to think. be a watchtower of some kind. If it is, it's for something very tall. Or maybe yes. the air holes could be it's a lot of air holes there's another yurt down there down the hill yeah i mean it's set on the side of a of a hill here such that it could they could be observation holes i mean it's a fairly good vantage from here Mm -hmm. uh well yeah usually what i've i've seen these for is for trend for holding large beasts in a pen or for capturing prisoners okay like for holding prisoners yeah, for holding prisoners. There's a right. quest where you have to go around Sulphur Lakes and rescue um, the some elves and humans that are stuck in there. Right. Right. Hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah, we got bunches of these. Including oh. a... Uh, split level effect here. <laughs> More of Pale people are interesting. Look how big their shoulders are compared to the waist and the legs. Also, look at their their ears are pointed like hobbit ears. Yeah, it's almost like these are the, the sort of halflings that we see later on yeah. in Enidwaith that were like captured and kept indoors for 20 years. I have to say that the Though these look much more hobbit-like than those those bogans in Enidwife, mm-hmm. which looked much more goblinish. Yeah. And there's there's none of these have any furniture or anything of any kind. They, I mean, from the when you come up the path, it looks like these could just be homes. Not that you can get into this top one. Yes, kind of Ewok village here. Yeah. I mean, it looks like that. But. Oh, right, this is the lady you're supposed to rescue, right? Yeah, I think so. She looks like she's tied up, but she's tied up to a, first of all, 
I want to look flag hole? I want to oh, look it's got clothing. the white worm on it. I don't think yeah. we've seen the white worm on a flag. So I'm looking at her clothing. Definitely looks like she'd be one of those uh, poison-slinging spider ladies. Yeah, very ornate. Wearing different colors. I mean, the whole bodice thing is extremely ornate. Yeah, she's got tribal tattoos. Are those tattoos on, on her, her skin, or is that lace on her dress? I think they're tattoos on her face and her chest. Oh, it's because it's on her face, too. Yeah, you're right. The ones on her face uh-huh. match her chest. Some right. like Maori kind of... Okay. Oh, interesting. Her shoes have, like, little tabby where the big toe is separated from the others. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it fits the sort of nicer dressed of the native women. Yes. In but yeah, we've got the... We've got that the, would have been very expensive to dye. Yeah, yeah. We've got the white... Um, the as you, as you were saying, the white serpent banners here. The same symbol that we saw in those shields, which we've seen in both the camps of the good guys and the bad guys. Uh-huh. Let's see. This is a much better angle at those wings at the top of the... Yeah, JJ, you're absolutely right about the similarity to the winged helms. It really does look a lot like that. In fact, yeah, I can't unsee it now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially the way that those um, that those that the wings look like like bats' wings, right? Almost. Not exactly like <laughs> those old Deathstalker movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's pretty bad. Uh, we don't know much about Deirdre. I looked at her uh, quest info. All we know is that her mother's A and she's trying to get back to her. Okay. Well, that doesn't help us much. No. Oh, I can see the moon. Yeah. I was just noticing Usually it's a beautiful clear canopy. night here in Angmar. Yeah, we don't have that weird canopy over here. I guess yeah. the evil didn't need a containment field around here. Right. So I was just looking at the patterns of the um, the sort of decorative stuff on the, you know, arms and shoulders of the statue. I never really looked at this. Um, it's, it's, it's the like curly cues that I'm interested in here. Yeah, it's sort of filigree looking. It's organic, but it doesn't remind me of anything in particular. No, very different from. And, and very different from, like, the ancient swirly styles that we see in the ancient graveyards and things like that. It's clearly not anything that's exactly like that. Um, what I was actually thinking of looking at this was comparing and contrasting the patterns carved onto the arms of this Watcher statue and the patterns on the face and chest of the woman over there. Yeah, actually, I, was, I had that same thought, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wonder if the, the visions inspired both. Now, the question is, did, were these things once roaming the land or something like that? That's the part that really curious me. Where did they come, come up with the idea for this monster design? Yeah, exactly. This sort of serpent-bodied, two-armed, long-fingered, um, horned, weird horns, too. Kind of droopy, horned 
emo in your face horns. Yeah. With spikes on top. Yeah, with spikes on top. Yeah, are these like the 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 creatures that lived outside the world or in the black recesses that no one knew or something like that? Well, they're meant to be um yeah, I agree with Amathorn. They look like the kind of thing you might see if you delved too greedily and too deep. Um, yeah, yeah, they do look like, uh, you know, I don't know, a nameless fear or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, ex- that's kind of what I was thinking of the nameless fears in Moria. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that carving down on the, the back of the wrist and hand of the creature almost looked like veins. Or lightning. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Oh, hey, Ginger, I, I see your question about the Arkenstone and the Silmarils. That's a really interesting question. I'm not going to be able to answer that now, but if you tune into my Grifflet stream on Friday afternoons on the Lotro official channel at 1 p.m. Eastern time, that's when I will be happy to talk about the Silmarils and the Arkenstone. The Silmarils, or to call them by their Anglo-Saxon name, the Arkenstana. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very nice. Yeah, I'm sure there's whole books on that subject. Yes. Sorry, I'm just wondering what these... I'm trying to figure out several things, including what is this lumber leaning up against the tower for? Is it a scaffold? Is it a structure? Fortified? Did it used to be a structure? Is it a kind of buttress? Is it scrap? The tall one, I think, is just scrap. Yeah, yeah garbage of some kind or something. I think it's... What is it with these guys just leaving stuff lying around for anyone? It's just... Yeah. But I still haven't figured out what these yurts even are. Because there are so many of them that it does look like an encampment. Like these are barracks and the the other times we've seen them used for other things was because it was convenient at the time? Yeah, I don't know. But the only thing we've seen in them is is pale folk. Yeah. And what's up with the pale folk? That I can't say. I think they're very high. Have we seen these guys in Goblin Town? I, I seem to recall seeing these guys in Goblin Town, but I'm not sure. I don't know. We saw goblins that looked like them. This is a goblin encampment. You can see there's goblins over here. Oh, yeah. Actual goblins. Whoa. What knocked me off my horse? The goblin knocked you off your horse? I don't know. Horses aren't as high level as I am, so. Just caught me off guard. Let's see. What kind of goblin are you? You are a. Goblin Town Lobber. Oh, look at him in his little falda and his breastplate. He's a well-dressed goblin. Yeah, look, their armor looks really 
more advanced than the stuff we've seen in Goblin Town. Yeah. Other Again, than that, it's just only a So, the pale folk are uh, called enslaved. So, are we to understand that these little yurts are the like holding areas for the pale folk, like maybe. the pens of the of the pale folk? That would make sense. Pretty roomy. Yeah. Um, now oh, I know they're I not very realized... effective pens. Certainly, yeah. like, I mean, got enormous wide doors and stuff. But like, is that why there's no furniture? Because you know they're they're they are living spaces, but they're only living spaces for the slaves, so they don't you know put furniture in. Well, yeah, like I said, it also is used for penning some of the big, like, you know, ogre-ish characters as right. well. So right. furniture would just get in the way and be expensive to replace. Yeah, I suspect so. I, suspect I, I so. just realized something, though. Um, the goblin armor we're seeing, we're seeing the colors of that cargo-like flag on Uh-huh. That's what marks it as different. Right. The red, like, shield thing in front and back of their breastplate. Yeah, the red, the, yeah. Armor. yeah. He had a red... Breastplate with gold. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Gold on it, and same thing with his falda. It was red leather with gold tips. Right, right. Yeah. Somebody outfitted them. Interesting. Okay. Well, it is getting late. I'm still trying to like be better and let people go earlier, not keep everybody up all night. Um, <laughs> so I think. I think we're not going to be able to get into Bargularon, so that's okay. Um, so next time, let's continue on down then and go to Gorothlad and uh, uh, Mathad and explore down here the southeast corner. Um, then maybe we can go up to the rift, and then we'll be ready to move into Urgarth and Karndum. Sounds good. Yeah. Cool. There we go being all systematic here in our exploration of <laughs> Angmar. Excellent. Cool. All right. All right. Um, well, thanks, everybody, for joining me, and we will see you guys again next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.